Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Welcome everyone, please be seated. So good to be here. Would you believe it? It's already, February is already gone. Easter is coming. And then, believe it or not, soon it's going to be Christmas. My goodness. Oh, there we go. And I know, Sue, Summer Sunday, is it up to you this year? Summer Sunday is coming up again, everything. No, fantastic Summer Sunday series with Mission Impossible and a great series this year starting off with Ears to Hear and working our way through the letter, letters Jesus sent to the churches from the book of Revelation. How all these letters are so relevant to us today. You might think, oh, they were written so many years ago, about 2,000 years ago. Not relevant to us. Well, actually, you believe it or not, it is so relevant to the churches. And I just pray that we will, as we journey through, that we will all ask the question, Lord, what are you saying to me personally, but also what are you saying to Mount Pleasant? All right. Let's ask that question. What are you saying to Mount Pleasant? As the church, what is it that you are saying to us? Now, we're going to be looking at the letter sent to the church at Pergamum, a great city in Asia Minor, a small metropolis in its time. Not was it only a great city, the population was big, big in education and big in governance. It was built on a cone-shaped hill overlooking Caicos Valley, and Pergamon was located roughly 30 kilometres inland of the Aegean Sea along the Caicos River. And it was a model, model civilization of the Hellenistic civilization and a culture, and it was a beacon of learning, and it boasted a library of... 200, approximately 200,000, I reckon in those times, maybe scrolls and parchments, and maybe the beginning of books. Apparently it was about one volume per head of population, so one book per person. And it had the steepest amphitheater of 10,000 seats in the world, steepest in the world, 10,000 seats, and then legend goes that it was the birthplace of the parchment. So these guys were quite, quite bright and well-educated, and it was a metropolis of its time. And because of its size and political initiative in allowing with the Roman conquerors, the proconsul, the head of Pergamon, was granted the highest official authority. He was given the Aius Gladii. That was... Pretty cool, wasn't it? I use gladi. The right of sword, a power, an authority to kill at will. All right? And that sword was the power of life and death, which we will come to it in a minute. And the more I meditate on this passage and I looked at it and I prayed on it, the more I realized the similarity of the persecution, of the struggle, of the things that the Pergamon church had faced was so similar to the churches of today, what we face with the 
current cultural and social settings of these times. So let's get started. Tonight, I believe Jasmine is going to read for us from Revelation 2, 12 to 17. Thank you, Jasmine. Revelation 2, 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who has put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Amen. Thank you, Jasmine. Now, the letter to Pergamon begins with the acknowledgement of the difficulty of living in an environment so it's distinctly pagan and a commendation for the church's faithful witness in the face of severe persecution. And Jesus says, I know where you live. And I also know where Satan has his throne. There are many explanations of the meaning where Satan has his throne. Now, the scholars debate about it. Some say it's, it's the landscape, the, where it is actually situa- the city is situated. It is the statue of Zeus that was there, a monumental figure that was there, or the way the people engaged in pagan gods. Many deities and also the imperial cult of worshipping Caesar. And of the seven cities, Pergamon was the one in which church was most liable to clash with the imperial cult of worshipping Caesar, burning incense to Caesar as Lord and Saviour. And the concluding phrase of verse 13, where Satan dwells, is contrasted with the first clause of the commendation, I know where you dwell. It kind of accentuates the idea that light and darkness cannot dwell together in peaceful coexistence. So no matter what we think of or understand where Satan has his throne to be, the thing that we can take away here is that they were the Pergamon Christians were living in a society where there were so much or so many other deities, other gods, other way of living, other idols in place. So for the Christians in Pergamon, it was either God, Jesus, or the other. You could not have two. So, in the text, it continues that Jesus writes as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And in context of the life in a provincial capital where the proconsul was granted, the Ayus Gladi, the right of the sword, 
the power to execute at will. It was like James Bond, licensed to kill. The proconsul was given the power to execute Christians at will. And this was a dim reality that the Christians who lived in Pergamon at the, at the time, a looming threat to the believers. And so Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, reminding them that the sovereign Lord is the one who has power over life and death. He has the ultimate power. It is a reminder, it is an assurance, it is I who have that power, not the proconsul, not the Romans. And he commends them, like their brothers and sisters in Smyrna, he commends them. The believers in Pergamon, even though they had suffered persecution, they stay true to the faith. And Antipas, the legend goes that he was a bishop at Pergamon, and he was called up by the proconsul to burn incense to Caesar. Antipas refused. He held faithful to his beliefs. And he was put on the altar, a big bronze bowl, and he was just roasted until he died. Yet, he did not give up his faith. Jesus says, in the midst of all this persecution, you held to your faith. You stayed true to my name. Yet, well, the church at Pergamon as a whole was commended for their perseverance through persecution. They are inducted for harboring a sect of spiritual compromises. This is the opposite to the church in Ephesus where the overemphasis was on the internal doctrinal purity which led to a lack of love and concern for the for those outside of the church, but here it seems that a de-emphasis on the doctrinal purity led to an over-identification with the world. Jesus says, there are some of you, some among you, who told to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. False teachers came into the mix and they embraced it. They accepted it. Now, if I just want to pause and take a look at who Balaam is because he p- plays a pretty big role in this. Now, Balaam was a prophet of God. He was a prophet of God. But he was a prophet for hire. He was up for hire. So Balak, king of the Moabites. This story, this narrative comes, in, comes out in Numbers chapters 20, 22, 24, and you can pick it up more of it in chapters 20, 31 to 33. Balak sees that the Israelites, as they're coming into the promised land, they just, they just cleaned out the Amorites. And he's, he's scared. And Balak goes, what am I going to do? Actually, I've got a great idea. I'm going to call this Balaam and I'm going to ask him to put a curse on the Israelites, right? Say some bad things about them. And maybe God will put a curse on them and maybe they'll die or something. So he sends his, 
his princes, three times he sends them to Balaam. And eventually Balaam comes because there's this great offer, right? I want you to read it because there's an interesting thing with a donkey in there as well. Anyway, he comes, but instead of cursing the Israelites, Balaam says, I can only say what God has told me to say. And he blesses them three times and Balak gets really cheesed off. Really cheesed off. And, and eventually, it looks like, in this reading, it looks like Balak, wanting his, his dough, he actually gives, sorry, Balaam wanting his money, he actually gives Balak some advice. Befriend the Israelites. Don't oppose them, befriend them. Get close to them. Intermarry with them. And then have your way of life imposed on them. And God will punish them. Balaam's advice led to Baal worship in Peor. Chapter 31 of Numbers. And he became a prototype of all corrupt teachers who betrayed believers into fatal compromise with worldly ideologies and spiritual unchastity. 24,000 Israelites die because of Baal worship. False teachings come in. Israelites embrace and live among when God said, no, don't do that. And so here, Jesus refers to Balaam of what he had done and equates to the people in the church, you are no different. Those who have taken on the false teachings, you are no different to Balaam because you will actually take the ones who hold true to God's word, you will seduce them, you will entice them into sin. The reference to those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitan enhances this idea that some had adopted a laxer attitude, a relaxed attitude to pagan society and religion. Even though only a portion of the church had fallen prey to these doctrines, false doctrines, all of the church is held accountable. Listen to me carefully. Even though only a few had fallen prey to these Doctrines, all of the church is held accountable for not being proactive in discipling and weeding out their presence. Jesus does not say in this letter that I will come and just sort out the ones who are the false teachers. No, he writes the letter to the church. He writes the letter to the church. And in response to the church's laxity and allowing these spiritual compromises to pollute the purity of the Christianity, Jesus exhorts the church to repent. The church to repent. It doesn't say individuals repent. He says church, repent. For what is taking place within and amongst yourselves And the Greek term here, metaneo, 
repent means to have a change of mind, a change of allegiance. Yes, repenting means if you're walking down this way, you turn 180 degrees, you don't do that anymore, you walk down this way. It also means the change and allegiance. In the city where Satan had his vices, spiritual polygamy and the marriage of worldly ideologies and practice of the worship of the church was evident. It was an evidence of allegiance to Satan. Jesus was referring to that. Saying, well, if you're not for me, if you're not with me, if you're holding on to these false teachings, that's where Satan dwells. And you have embraced that. The church is commanded to reverse the laxity, the relaxedness, and to actively discipline those Christians who were engaging in these perversities. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll read all about it. If action were not taken quickly, the whole church could be captivated by these teachers. This problem needed to be rectified immediately. And Jesus' exhortation to the church at Pergamon is set against a vivid description of pending judgment. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, who he was, who he is, and who he will be. If you take Jesus out of the book of Revelation, you have no revelation. Jesus is the central figure. So whenever you engage in the book of Revelation, Jesus has to be the central figure. And Jesus, when he speaks and when he writes this letter, he is actually talking about the eschatological perspective, the eternal perspective. Why does Jesus say that he loves us? When Jesus prayed, he said, I did not lose one except for the one who was marked. If our Father, if our Jesus, if our Lord was so desperately wanting and knowing that he did not lose, how much more will he give up to save all of us here tonight? He doesn't want to lose anyone that is why he's writing these letters, not to judge us, not to, not to put us in it, into our spot. He's actually saying, I love you. I gave my life for you. Don't walk away. Don't go to those false teachers. Jesus warns the church that he himself will come soon to fight against the Compromises with the sword of his mouth. And if they are still taking refuge within the church, then this judgment will not go well for the congregation. The imagery of the word is a double-edged sword. And as emerging from the mouth of God is a dominant scriptural theme. Particularly in the New Testament, everything was created by God's spoken word and everything is sustained by it. God's word is described in a number of ways throughout scripture, sometimes with a positive connotation and other times with a theme of judgment. But his word 
should always confront us. And it demands a response. Whenever we engage with his word, we should have a response of what he has actually said about himself, of who we are, of our relationship with him. He demands a response. And in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When Jesus returns, he not only will actually see us of what we have done, what we have said, but he will actually also see our, our thoughts and our hearts. Our thoughts and our hearts. And that is a, that is a promise that actually Jesus has set for us. And Jesus always frames his letters within a context of encouragement, challenge, and a promise. And he offers the other side of the eternal plan, incorporating the themes of sustenance, the hidden manner, and vindication of the white stone. Now, the hidden manner, if you remember from the book of Exodus in the wilderness, the Lord God provided for the Israelites. They hid a manna. And I truly believe that what Jesus is saying here is that in your times of persecution, in the, in the times that you are living now, it is I who will sustain you. It is I who will carry you through. It's not by your strength, not by your might, not by your thinking, not what you can do, but it is I who will sustain you through these difficult times. I will give you the understanding. I will reveal things to you, the hidden things to you. It is I who will do it. It is Jesus who will do it. And the white stone has two cultural Antecedents, both of which add something to the, to the metaphor of what is written here. In the ancient judicial custom, whereby the jurors would mark their verdict on the accused by casting two, one of two smooth stones. One was white, one was black. The black stone was a guilty verdict. And a white stone marked a verdict of acquittal, innocence, and vindication. So think about that. As you are victorious, I'm going to sustain you through these persecutions, these times. I will sustain you. Yet, if you are victorious, I will give you this white stone. I will vindicate you. I will acquit you. You are innocent. But there was another where a white stone was given to the victor of the games a reward for their performance, such, a bit like the victor's crown. As you journey through, as you are victorious, here's a white stone with your name on it, a new name. You know, our person's name in ancient culture had a strong tie to the perceived inner workings of that person. The name, in some sense, defined who you were. Giving a new name is a theme we see present throughout Scripture as a consummation of someone's right relationship with God. 
Think of Abraham with Abraham, Paul, Saul, Simon, Peter, a new name that is given. And it's a promise that Jesus makes to us. Once you are victorious, here's the white stone with your new name on it in Christ. So what's it in it for us today? How do we take this on for us today? Like Pergamum, our contemporary culture thrives on the promotion of self-grandizement and satisfaction, and Satan feeds off our uncertainty of what is permissible and what is not within the church. Hear me clearly. What is permissible and what is not? And we can embrace, we can take on false teachings because it is very, very subtle the way the devil works. While we are to hold on to the gospel of grace with both hands, can it be taken to make sure that we have been set free, set free from these sins that bounded us? Two sins are mentioned in the text today, of eating food sacrificed to idols and that of sexual immorality, which appeared in the Old Testament, which appears in the New Testament, and it appeared in the early church, and it seems to appear today. Pathway to them is a kind of temptation which is typical of worldliness at any stage in our history and in our times. We can justify these practices by asking this question. What's the harm in it? What's the harm? There's no harm in it. Well, everyone does it. You know, shouldn't I? I don't want to miss out. When compromise creeps in, the distinction between church and the world is blurred. It gets blurred. There is too much tolerance and too little discipline. So where are the pressures of compromise today? Where is it coming from? On a personal level, it might be in the areas of sexual immorality. It might be addictions. It might be false teachings. It might be being relaxed, take it easy, too hard being a Christian. I just like to have a bit of this and I'll keep Jesus as a safety in my pocket and I'll only pull him out when I need him. At a church level, we can see a term that I come across, progressive Christianity. Sounds good, doesn't it? Progressive Christianity. Actually, it just, simply, it just means church adapting with the times. You know? Well, we don't want the pipe organs. We want, we want the whole band, the whole worship team. Hear my heart in this. It's not wrong to move with the times. But where is our focus? Where is our focus when we, when we are applying these things that have come over time to the church 
we need to ask the question, well, are churches changing culture or is culture changing the church? Are churches changing the culture or is culture changing the church? Now, I'll come across this article. Yes, it's an American article, but I think it, it's relevant to all the churches across the world. And it talks about this, progressive Christianity. And I wonder if some of us might hear ourselves saying, yeah, I was a bit like that. Culture is shaping church. Church is a place. Church came to be seen as somewhere Christians go on a Sunday. Americans have become more reluctant to accept personal accountability and responsibility for being the embodiment of the church. It has become a place. It has become an event. Church evolved into a weekly production as Americans sought greater convenience and developed shorter attention spans. To cater for that, it became an event. It became an institution. It became a social club. It became a business. It became a hospital for sinners, for the unchurched. Attending a weekend service became a last resort for those in crisis anywhere in America's endless search for fulfillment and happiness elsewhere eventually met dead ends at every turn. Church became easy. Churches began allowing congregants to abdicate evangelism to professionals as consumers came to expect excellent customer service or I'll take my business elsewhere. It was quick. Worship services grew shorter. Sunday schools disappeared as their schedules got busier, leaving less time for church between work and social and kids' activities. Sermons became scripted. The church became scripted. Sermon songs became more carefully choreographed that Americans grew accustomed to a high degree of professionalism and entertainment value at any event they attend. And this one really hurt. Church became segregated. Collaboration among churches across denominations has decreased and diversity has suffered as divisiveness has increased between those on different sides of the racial demographic, and political aisles, not to mention denominations. Yes, churches in America, well, all around the world, have either intentionally or unwittingly, but either way, unfortunately, adopted many features commonly seen in the secular world. Is culture shaping church? Well, church is not shaping culture. This is the other side of all these points. Well, church is not a place. It's you. Because church is now generally defined as an institution no longer consistent with the original Greek words used in Scripture. Fewer individuals, Christians, are being equipped to live out their intended Great Commission mandate as the personification of the church to those around them. Church is you. Church is me. Church is you. Church is disciple making. Church is decentralized. Church is evangelistic. Church is compassionate. Church 
is believers in a culture increasingly inclined to doubt the validity of absolutes and truth and in the name of tolerance hold that all religious roads essentially lead to the same destination, there is no better time for each of us as the living, breathing church to take responsibility for leading people to Christ. Church are people gathered Believers gathered together to lead others to Christ. Church is risky. Church is loving. Church is transformative. And church is united. Everyone desires a sense of belonging. Yet that carnal craving diminishes the collective influence of the church when Christians sell out their individual responsibility to be a light in the dark world in exchange for service to a single congregation. In short, when we value what the world does instead of valuing the kingdom, we forfeit our role as witness for the Christ kingdom in this world. Too much of Christianity has become indistinguishable from our culture. Too much of our evangelistic effort is geared persuading the world that we are acceptable because we are just like them. Jesus, God, calls us to be holy. A people set apart to be the light and the salt of this world, to be different, not to, not to assimilate and be same. Yes, we are in the world, but we should never be of the world. This world is in desperate need of a saviour. Look at our, well, look at the paper. We only need to see the paper. And we know that the world is in desperate need of a saviour. Well, what about you and me? What about us? The temptation of compromise, to compromise is great and subtle. If it was really in your face and out there, blatantly obvious, then we will be able to pick it up. But it's not. Then how do we know when you want to identify something that is false, that is fake, that is not of God? How do you know? How do you and I know? Well, I gave this example. How do you know if this watch is fake? It's not something that I bought. You know, I use back streets of Korea. You know, in the marketplace and, you know, two bucks, you go to the shop and they say, oh, I want ten bucks for it. And I said, no, 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 I'll give you a dollar, you know, you bargain. How do you know if this one is not a fake? Well, to pick out a fake, you need to put it next to the real thing. Or you need to know what the real thing looks like. Yeah? There was a time when the Rolex watch, fake Rolex watch was rife and everybody wanted one, Right? And the best way, they said, to pick out a fake Rolex watch was actually look at the dial. The real ones actually had the crown on the dial itself here. The fake ones did not. And that was the easiest way to pick it out. But what if it's not that easy? What if it's very subtle, subtle differences? Well, 
we need to put it next to the real thing, the real thing. And I tell you what, to find what is wrong or what is not right and what is creeping into the church, that doesn't seem right. We need to put it next to the real thing. And this is the real thing. It is only when we devour and understand the double-edged sword, the word of God, through the revelation and working of the Holy Spirit, that we come to know the truth. John 16, 13 says this, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And let me finish off with this story. I was in prayer and I've shared this with some of the leaders, youth leaders. And I said, you know, God, I'm a greedy person and I really like to see you face to face. I like to see you face to face like Moses did. I want to converse with you face to face as a friend does. A bit out there, prayer. But then God responded and says, actually, Michael, you know, you can and you do. Open up your Bible and as you read and as you engage in the word of God, you are seeing me face to face. I am here. This is who I am. And as you read these words, you are gazing upon the face of God. You want to know the false, what is false, the false teachings? You know, don't take my word for it. Don't, whatever you see on YouTube, whatever you see or hear elsewhere, test it against the word of God. That is the only place where you will find the truth. Don't take anything and everything that is because he's a famous, a gifted speaker. I'm not articulate in speech and whatever, but I tell you what, what I say, you should take it, read it, and compare it, and pray on it, and say, God, is this a word from you, or is it something that Michael conjured up? All of us should do that. Gaze upon the face of God and be strengthened and encouraged. And I pray that we will shape the culture for God's kingdom and not let culture shape this church. You know, as I was preparing these words, I just had on my heart to share a moment as we come together as church And if God has spoken to you or touched an aspect in your heart, something in your heart, I'm going to invite you to come down. I'm going to ask the ministry leaders to come. We're going to take a time of prayer. If in your life, if you have any struggles, if you had doubts about your faith, if you had, or if you are yet to know who God is and you are seeking and you are finding, and if you're asking God, 
Are you there? I invite you to come. You don't have to share what's on your heart. But if you know you had drifted away, you feel a bit distant, God is inviting you tonight. He invites all of us to come. Come and be in his presence. And if there are things in our lives that we need to repent, just take this time to pray and seek his forgiveness. Because his loving arms are always open and he's seeking and wanting. So I've asked Alana to come and just lead us into this time of prayer. So when you're ready and if you felt that you have been led or been touched by the Spirit this evening, to come and just to lay it before him, the things that you are going through, or maybe some of the questions that you have about Christianity. Just take this time to let's give it to God. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 93291777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.